Amen. What a joy it is to gather together and to sing of the sovereignty of our God, to sing of the control that he has over all things, to remind our hearts of the joy of being a believer where we can, with absolute confidence, follow our good shepherd. If you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, go ahead and take them and turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. A number of years ago, there was a study done where researchers performed an experiment to see what the effects, if any, of hope are to a patient. Could hope have any effect on a patient? There were two sets of laboratory rats who were placed in separate tubs of water. The researchers left one set in the water and found that within an hour they had all drowned. The other rats were periodically lifted out of the water and then returned. When that happened, the second set of rats swam for over 24 hours. Why? Not because they were given a rest, but because they were given hope. Those animals somehow hoped that if they could stay afloat for just a little while longer, somebody would reach and grab them and give them a respite. If hope hope holds such power for unthinking rodents, how much more of an effect could it have on us? How much more of an effect could it have in our lives? This is actually one of the ways that we got the double-blind method of testing ministers of testing potential medicine for patients. It used to be that the administers of the potential drugs in question and the, the testing that was done, they would know which was the right one, which was the actual pill, and which was the placebo, which was the fake one. They would know that the patient wouldn't, but they would know which was real and which was not. And somehow, based off of their knowledge of knowing which one was real, maybe according to their voice, the tone of voice that they had, maybe a smile or maybe just a little twinkle in their eye, the, the, the correct pill, the one that was the actual pill and not the placebo, that one early on when they were doing these testings, they found that those were off the charts successful. And they knew that's not right. According to the research, this isn't always the way that this goes. Why is it such that the, the testing is off the charts in favor of this new medicine? And then they started doing the double-blind method where even the doctor administering The potential new drug doesn't know which is which, doesn't know placebo, doesn't know the real one. That's because there was hope. There was some aspect of hope given. And in hope, there is power. Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. And hope, biblically, is not optimism. We're not talking about just hoping for the best. This isn't, you know, buy a lottery ticket and hope you win kind of a hope. This is grounded assurance. This is not just uh, pie in the sky, uh, hopeful optimism. No, this is grounded assurance. Last Lord's Day, when we gathered together, we studied just the first, verse, the first eight verses of Daniel 7. And in looking at those first eight verses, we just stared at many reasons to be afraid. We looked at many reasons to be terrified of the future. Daniel was terrified. He saw, yes, that God's the revealer of what's going to happen, but he didn't give him everything. God reveals only certain things, not all things, exactly what we need, but not more than that. But we also saw that human history is filled with devastating evil. And we sat in that evil. We didn't move too quickly into the verses we're looking at this morning because I wanted us to feel the full weight of the evil of these beastly kingdoms that are ruling the world. We asked the question, how then do we live in the already not yet? Yes, God is king and he's sovereign, but he's allowing these beastly kingdoms to go forth. And they're terrifying Last week, we saw many reasons to have fear in the midst of these beastly kingdoms. But this week, we will see many reasons to have hope. We said Daniel is really Dramamine for our C6 souls. 
So where, wherever you've come from, whatever your background this last week, whatever difficulties, worries, anxieties, whatever fears, whatever concerns, whatever joys, whatever you've gone through, we come into this building, we come here in this moment for a purpose, and that purpose is to have our, about the recalibrated, our thinking recalibrated so that we would see exactly what we should see about the future, therefore feeling what we should feel about the future. So let's take some Dramamine together today. Let's stare at six reasons why we have peace. Six reasons to have peace in the midst of pandemonium. Six reasons to have calm in the midst of chaos. Six reasons to have hope in the midst of hardship. And they come from verses 9 through 14. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire and its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the great boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed season of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. Father, we thank you for these words. We are a people desperate for hope. And if we are, as believers, how much more so a, a godless world around us, a world with no hope of future restoration, of reconciliation, of gospel hope. They have no hope. So how much more so are they struggling with fear? If we need hope, how much more so do they need it? So Father, grant hope. Give hope. Administer hope to our souls. We stared very intently at the evil of this world last week. We looked intently at the depravity of man and it made us sick to our stomachs and it made us struggle for hope in the midst of fear. And it is right that we would be there because that's exactly where Daniel was as he finished seeing these beastly kingdoms. And yet it is in that precise moment that he sees this next vision. It is in that moment of fear and panic and being terrified that you speak, you show him hope so show us hope. Give us, as the hymn writer says, strength for today. Open our eyes this morning. Light hope for tomorrow. Holy Spirit, open our eyes this morning that we would behold wonderful things from your word, from your law. We come needy. We come helpless. We come, as Samuel would say, speak, Lord. For your servant is listening. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. These verses, verse 9 through 14, give us six different reasons that we can have hope in the midst of hardship. And the first reason is because, number one, our God rules in sovereign perfection. Our God rules in sovereign perfection. This is verses 9 through the beginning of verse 10. Daniel says, I kept looking, and we would expect him to say, and I saw what continued to happen with that little horn. Remember, we saw these four beastly kingdoms, and then this terrifying kingdom at the end, that fourth kingdom was terrifying. It's Rome, but it's really Rome 2.0, and it's where the Antichrist is going to come from, and it's terrifying, and Daniel's looking at this little horn that's rising up, that's gaining power, that's gaining control over ten kings, and he's wondering, how is this going to be destroyed? What's going to happen? And as he's looking, we would expect him to say, I saw the little horn, dot, dot, dot. 
But there's an abrupt change. I kept looking and I saw thrones. I kept looking and I saw the Ancient of Days. I kept looking, no more little horn. God is in view. This is an abrupt change and it's purposeful. We have been bracing ourselves at the end of verse 8 for more bad news and yet Daniel is ushered into the throne room of heaven to see only good news. The fourth beast and the little horn are barely introduced when we see their swift end. There's going to be more to talk about, about this little horn. But this text is pushing us to, to just say, Daniel would say to us this morning, please forget about the little horn. He is insignificant compared to what is happening in this throne room. Don't worry about the little horn. Instead, fix your eyes on this. Even the structure of this text. Did you notice the structure of this text? We see the Ancient of Days, the Little Horn, and the Son of Man. The Little Horn is sandwiched between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. It's as if the Little Horn, even in the structure of the text, is already being destroyed. Don't worry about him. He sees thrones. Why plural thrones? We're going to see one throne, end of verse 9, God's throne. Why plural thrones? The reason why is because these thrones are for you and me. Luke chapter 22, verse 30, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he said, you all will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So you go, okay, that's just for the Jews, that's just for the disciples. Correct, you're right, good hermeneutics. But 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Paul broadens it out and says, all of the saints will judge the world. The saints will judge the world. This is in context he's talking about don't uh, take each other to an earthly court. Don't sue each other because you're going to judge angels. You're going to rule over angels. You're going to judge the whole world. I will grant, verse 21, Jesus says, whoever overcomes, anyone who overcomes, I will grant him to sit on my throne with me. And then Revelation 20, verse 4, the thrones that we're seeing here in Daniel 7, we see in Revelation 20, and I saw thrones and judgment was given to those who sat on them. These thrones are for you and for me to rule and to reign with Christ. Daniel says, I saw thrones set up and then I saw the ancient of days seated. Ancient of days doesn't mean that God is old. It means that he is eternal. It doesn't mean this is an old guy. It means that he had never had a beginning. He goes on all the way back to the beginning of human history and far beyond it into eternity past. The Ancient of Days. This is the Father. By the way, we'll see this in context. This is God the Father being described as the Ancient of Days. And he is sitting down. This is sanity in the midst of chaos. One author says, human kingdoms are always caught up in feverish activity, military or diplomatic, but God is never taken by surprise, never undecided, never in a panic about this world. We like to say here at CBC that God rules the world with his feet up. He is able to sit back and relax. He is not feverishly wondering what's going to happen. He sits. He doesn't stew. Sinclair Ferguson writes of God, as he's described here, quote, he is never taken by surprise. He is never undecided. Never wondering. God holds the position of ultimate authority, seated on his throne above every other throne. We see this throne room in Isaiah 6, in Ezekiel 1. And we see similar uh, attributes given to the Ancient of Days, even in Revelation chapter 1, which we've already studied together. Here, Daniel sees clothing. The clothing of the Ancient of Days is like white snow. That represents holiness and purity. And moral purity is really important here in the flow of this argument, of this vision, because all of these beasts, all of these kingdoms have been taking authority from the other kingdoms in immoral ways, but not our God. God didn't somehow win his throne through improper means as the beasts have. No, this ancient of days is pure. He is morally pure in every way, shape, and form. He is the very definition of moral purity. His hair is like wool, like pure wool. It's white. It's shining. This represents wisdom and maturity in humans, and so it represents absolute wisdom and eternality with our God. So not only is he sovereign, but he knows how to use his sovereignty with wisdom. And he's sitting on a throne that's ablaze with fire. 
It's ablaze with fire. That's a picture of judgment, of fury, of God's furious wrath going forth from his presence. This is what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 says. Our God is a consuming fire. A throne, this throne has wheels on it. This is the Godmobile. This is a throne that's just moving around, a chariot of fire, as it were, meaning there is no place where God's judgment does not go. It's a mobile throne. It's moving around from place to place. And there's a river of fire. Judgment is flowing forth from this throne. So God, in perfect sovereignty, with perfect wisdom and perfect justice, pours out judgment upon these four kingdoms, and specifically upon this last, this little horn, this last king. This king, this is the king who those four beasts are fighting against. They're warring against this this king. So question, do you think any of these kingdoms, no matter how beastly they are, no no matter how powerful they are, do you think any of these kingdoms stand any sort of chance against this king on his throne? Not at all. Not even close. Psalm 97 verse 3, fire goes before our God and burns up his enemies on every side. So the Antichrist puts his fists, as it were, in the face of God. Everything in this world, everything on this planet, will be in a state of upheaval and unrest. And then we come to verse 9, and we find God seated on his throne, calmly just going about his business, completely undisturbed by the raging waves of rebellion that sweeps across this planet. God is on his throne, and he's not worried, and he's not anxious. He's never panicked. When the Antichrist begins his rule, when he starts to blaspheme our God, as we saw last week, our God in heaven calmly sits on his throne. Our God rules in sovereign perfection. Number two, we are not alone. We're not alone. Our God rules in sovereign perfection, but we aren't alone. Daniel says in verse 10, middle of verse 10, that he sees thousands upon thousands attending the Ancient of Days, and myriads upon myriads standing before him. Thousands upon thousands. That's Daniel doing his best to try and wring something like infinity out of the multiplication table that he was given. 10,000 was the largest number for which the ancient people had a word. So 10,000 times 10,000 is literally the biggest number that they could come up with. So literally, if we're going to do the math there, According to my iPhone, that's 100 million angels that are standing next to the throne room of God. But Daniel doesn't say it was that. He says there were more than that. He says that there are myriads upon myriads. So there's 10,000 times 10,000, which is 100 million. And then there's more than that, myriads upon myriads. The number is so unimaginable. It's a majestic number. Just think about this. He's telling us, that there are more angels surrounding the throne of God. It doesn't stagger you. A third of the population of the United States. And if that doesn't stagger you, think about this. Remember in the Old Testament, one angel, a single angel, killed 185,000 people. And we're told that there are more than 100 million people, more 100 million angels standing by God's side waiting to do his bidding. This is helpful for why Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, you don't need to fight for me, Peter. If I wanted to, I could just, I could ask the Lord, he'd send me a legion of angels. I don't need help. Just one would do. But I have myriads upon myriads of angels. And think about Daniel, writing this vision down, probably one of the last remaining Jews from the exile from Judah to Babylon, now into Persia. And he says... God is showing him, you're not alone. There are hundreds of millions of angels with you. Daniel's not alone in serving the Ancient of Days. He's just simply taking his place with the innumerable amount of other servants of Yahweh. Sinclair Ferguson says, Daniel was an earthly outpost of the heavenly garrison. I don't know about you, but sometimes you look around at this world and you feel like Elijah. God, I'm the only one here who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. 
this text reminds us that's not true. This church reminds us that's not true. Brothers and sisters, we're not alone. We will never be alone. And there will always be an army of angels attending our God, waiting to do his bidding. Number three, a third reason for hope, not only does our God rule in sovereign perfection, not only are we not alone, number three, justice will be done. We know justice will be done. We know this. Verse 10, the court sat. God, having taken his throne, calls his courtroom to order. It's very interesting because the Ancient of Days is doing this, but in other places in the Bible, John 5.22 or Matthew 7, we see Jesus being the one who's judging. Why is that? How do we reconcile this? Well, we're told in the New Testament that God the Father is going to give the judgment that is his over to the Son so that the Son will judge. It's the Father's prerogative, and he gives that judgment to Jesus. And so it's legitimate to identify the Father and the Son as doing the judging, both of them. And so here they sit, and the books are opened. Books, two types of books. There's two types of books in the Bible that we see regarding our eternal destiny. There's a book of works, and then the Lamb's book of life. Two different types of books. In Daniel chapter 12, just turn there really quickly. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will stand, and there will be a time of such distress, such as never happened since there was a nation until that time, and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, rescued. So there's the book that Revelation 20 tells us is the Lamb's book of life. But we also have another book. We have another book. In fact, turn to Revelation 20. Just go there really quickly. Revelation 20, verse 12. This is the great white throne judgment scene. Daniel is giving us a snapshot of it from the Old Testament, but we see a much clearer picture of this in the New Testament. The great white throne judgment. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne. This is Revelation 20, verse 11. And him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. There it is. Daniel 7 says the court sat and books were opened. Revelation 20 says books were opened. And the dead were judged. Uh, books were opened, verse 12. And another book was opened. So books were opened, and then there's another book which is the book of life. The dead were judged by the things that were written from the books according to their deeds. We know that this is true according to the Old Testament. There's other passages that speak of a record of the deeds that have been done that are written down in a book. God does not forget any of the works that we have done. And so those who do not place their trust and faith in Jesus Christ so that his works, his book of perfection can be their book those who do not do that and place their faith in Jesus, they will be judged according to their book of works. Every single thought, action, word, deed, attitude, everything has been recorded, will be recorded, and will be opened, and you will be judged according to God's standard of holiness on that day. And God's judgment will be just. Turn back to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says that the books were open. And because we know that the Ancient of Days is pure, he has uh, holiness and perfection, we know that every single judgment he will make will be equitable, fair, just, no partiality, no hint of unfairness. All of the injustice and evil that we see in this world around us will one day face a reckoning when these books are opened. And therefore, because God is judge, I don't have to be. Because God is judge, you don't have to be judge. God's judge. He's a better judge than you and I will ever be. Because, because God is judge, I can leave judgment to him. He'll do a better job with it than I will. Because God is judge, I can love others knowing that if they do not repent, judgment will come. I don't have to worry about it. Because God is judge, I know that he will plead my case. He will destroy evil. He will be a perfect, just judge. And justice will be done. So, three reasons that we have hope in the midst of hardship. God rules in sovereign perfection. We are not alone. Justice will ultimately be done. 
And then number four, evil will finally and ultimately be defeated. Evil will finally and ultimately be defeated. All the evil that we talk all the time, Sunday, all the despicable evil that happens all across the world all the time, it will come to an end. Verse 11, then I kept looking because of the sound of the great boastful words which the horn was speaking. So, hey, let's go back to the little horn. Let's reintroduce him to the scene because our eyes are fixed on the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days wants us to see the little horn's not going to last much longer. He's going to destroy him. The Antichrist is not going to last much longer here in this scene. This is the end of Antichrist's reign. The horn is speaking, the boastful words, the blasphemies. We're going to look at the Antichrist in much more detail in the coming chapters because Daniel's going to show us. We're going to go to other passages. We've already done that in Revelation 13 and on into the rest of that book. But here, Daniel sees, he keeps looking until the beast is killed. This is the Antichrist. He's killed. Revelation 19, the Antichrist is killed, the, pro- the false prophet. They're thrown into the lake of fire. They're taken at the battle of Armageddon. They're thrown into the lake of fire. They're destroyed. They're given to the burning fire. And Revelation 19, verse 20, tells us that they're given to the burning fire. And then Revelation 20, when the devil is given to the burning fire as well, the the lake of fire is opened up and it says that the devil is cast into the lake of of fire where the beast and the false prophet are also. They are there. They're already there. They've been there for that thousand-year reign of Christ in the Millennial Kingdom because they're defeated at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom at the Battle of Armageddon. And they're thrown into the lake of fire and they exist there alive. They don't... uh, uh, The Bible doesn't speak of annihilation. The Bible speaks of continual, eternal, conscious punishment. And then, verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, Daniel says, their dominion's taken away, but an extension of life is given to them for an appointed season of time. Why does he say this? This is actually really helpful. It's specifying for us. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. You guys remember those are the four beastly kingdoms? Those are the four kingdoms that we saw in chapter 2 with the statue. Those are the four beastly kingdoms in Daniel 7. Those four kingdoms, to some extent, continue in the successive kingdoms. We see it even in Daniel, right? Daniel is a Jew who is taken from Judah into Babylon. And then when Babylon is destroyed by Darius, by Cyrus, a Persian, Daniel's still alive and still ruling and reigning with Cyrus in Persia. So Gentile power shifts... But similar patterns are continued. They continue to exist in the sense that their people and their culture are absorbed in the next empires. You see that even in the Roman Empire, right? Rome takes over the known world, but they're still speaking Greek, right? Jesus is uh, alive during the Roman Empire, but Greek is still being spoken and written down. The New Testament's written in Greek, not in Latin originally. Why is that? Because of exactly what Daniel's saying. Once the beast is destroyed, once Babylon is destroyed, there's still an echo of Babylon in the next kingdom. There's still an echo of Medo-Persia in the next one, Greece in the next one, Rome in the next one. Now, the reason why Daniel says that is because he wants to compare and contrast what's happening with the fourth beast, with the little horn. Not so with the... going to be a, Once Jesus destroys the little horn, it's done, and there's never going to be a reverberation of the Antichrist kingdom ever again. The reason why we have those, those desires and those, uh, those birth pangs as they are described in Romans 8 for the new creation, for the new created order, is not because an evil empire dies and, and then we're all okay. We're all okay. We're, we're good. A new empire will, will rise up in its place. No. Evil empire dies. Guess what? In the vacuum of that evil empire being gone, another evil empire is going to grow. And on and on into the future. We've seen it in the past. We're going to see it in the future. We see it in this vision. But one day... Jesus says, when that little horn is destroyed, that's it. Evil's done. There's coming a day when evil will be done, finally and ultimately defeated. This is even seen in chapter 2, when the kingdoms kind of flow into each other, but when the rock comes and destroys the statue, that's it. It's pulverized, no more. Kingdoms and philosophies opposed to God may linger, but brothers and sisters, they will never last. The text is saying that God's ultimate victory over evil will be a long time coming. But there's a certain fact that's here in this text. Fire will fall from heaven. Judgment will come. Evil will be no more. Righteousness will prevail. Salvation is coming. That's reason to hope. That's reason to hope. 
Reason number five, Jesus, our greatest treasure, will rule and reign. Jesus, who is our greatest treasure, who we love more than anything in this world, he's going to be king. Think about it. If there's some politician that you love and you really want to win some election, tell me who that is, by the way, this unicorn politician that you know, that you really enjoy, that you love and you want to win an election. I don't know who they are. You tell me after this church service. But just picture with me, enjoy a fantasy with me, that there's some guy out there that you think he would be amazing. He'll rule the world really well. He'll rule America really well. And let's say somehow he wins. How excited would you be the next day to realize we got a good president? This is amazing. We got a good one, and we're excited for the future. Now, how much more so when Jesus says, hey, guys, I'll take it from here. I'll be king. How excited should we be? I mean, it's a dumb comparison, right? How awestruck should we be that Jesus, the king of kings, says, hey, I'm leaving heaven again to come down to earth and to rule and to reign on earth so that I can seize the Antichrist, destroy evil, and give my people a kingdom. That's amazing. That's what happens here. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man, like a Son of Man, one like a Son of Man. So the, this Son of Man is described in reference to the beast because we saw one like a beast, one like a beast. They're like a beast. And now we have one like a Son of Man to this person. The beast, this is a human. This person looks like a human. There's human likeness to this person. And this person is going to come up to the Ancient of Days, come near before him, and be given dominion and a kingdom. So my question is, who in the world, as a human, has a right to waltz into the presence of the Ancient of Days, to just walk right into God's presence? Well, we're given clues here. Number one, he's coming on the clouds. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. Clouds of heaven, all four beasts come from a chaotic sea. Son of Man comes from heaven. And this phrase, coming with the clouds, is used almost 70 times in the Old Testament, and it always refers to deity, to God's presence coming with the clouds. A second clue, so we have this human who is given a, a phrase, coming with the clouds, that's only given to deity anywhere else in the Old Testament. A second clue of who this man is. In verse 14, he is given a kingdom, and all the people's nations and men of every tongue serve him. My Bible says serve. That word serve has been used seven times in this book, and it will be used here in this chapter, and then one more time in verse 27. And every single time it's used in the book of Daniel, it's used as a reference to worship of a deity, supposed deity, or to God himself. So again, clearly this son of man is some form of divine deity. Clearly. Coming with the clouds of heaven, able to walk in the presence of the ancient of days, and everyone around him is worshiping him. So who is this son of man? This son of man elsewhere in the Old Testament would be described as the Messiah. In the New Testament, we are given a very clear understanding. So I think right, before we go to the New Testament, because you probably know who the son of man is, but before we go there, I think in the Old Testament, you can already see pictures that this man is not a normal man, not only a human man, there's something deeper about who he is. And then we see that clearly in the New Testament. The word son of man, or the phrase son of man, in the New Testament, that title appears 69 times in the Synoptic Gospels and 12 times in John. And it's Jesus' favorite title for himself. He always uses this title for himself. In fact, he never uses the title Messiah except for one passage in John 4, 26. He doesn't call himself Messiah. He calls himself Son of Man. He uses this title to speak of his preexistence in John 3.13 and John 6.62. He uses this title to speak of his suffering. Daniel 9.26, John 3.13 through 15. You remember Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 45, basically the theme verse of Mark. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He uses this title of himself about how one is saved. John 6, 53 through 54. He uses the title, Son of Man, to speak of final judgment. John 5, 25 through 27. He uses this title. He actually quotes this exact passage when he's on trial before Caiaphas in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. 
And he's this title, he quotes this passage, and he also quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. And he speaks to Caiaphas. Remember, Caiaphas says, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the living God? And he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. So Caiaphas, I'm looking at you right now being judged by you, but Caiaphas, one day I will be your judge. I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. I am the judge. Caiaphas, you will see me one day not as a prisoner in your courts, but as a judge in mine. And one commentator says of Jesus employing these two verses in his interaction with Caiaphas in Matthew 26, he says, the employment of this title in Daniel 7 by Jesus is one of the strongest evidences that Jesus attributed deity to himself. He claims to be God by saying, I am the Son of Man. And he comes near to the Ancient of Days, and he is given dominion. He is given dominion. The Father gives the gift of the kingdom to the Son. The Son purchased that kingdom for the Father, and the Father says, here's your kingdom. In essence, this is kind of the coronation. The, the Son is going to the Father saying, can I have the kingdom? The Father says, here's the kingdom. Get it, Son. And he goes and gets it in Revelation 19. So our God rules in sovereign perfection. We are not alone. Justice will be done. Evil will finally and ultimately be defeated. Jesus, our greatest treasure, is given a kingdom and a dominion and will rule and reign here on earth, Revelation 20. But it doesn't end there. Number six, the final reason that we see in these texts for hope, the final reason that we have been given in these verses for the hope that we can have in the midst of hardship is that we will reign with him in an indestructible kingdom. We will reign with him in an indestructible kingdom. Jesus shows up on the earth and says, I have a kingdom and you all are with me, ruling and reigning in this kingdom. He's given a kingdom but it's a different kind of kingdom than Nebuchadnezzar had, than Alexander had, than Rome had, because, end of verse 14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will never be taken away. His kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. This is a different kind of kingdom. But we're going to be there. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that, verse 14, all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. We will be there to serve our king, to love him, to follow him, to glory in his rule and his reign. That's why verse 9 says, and this is really the bookend to what verse 9 said. Verse 9 said, there are thrones that are set up, and then we get to rule and reign with him. We get this. The Son of Man is that stone in chapter 2 that destroys the statue and a statue who treasures him and then says to every single person who's followed him, who loves him, who treasures him, who desires that kingdom, he says, evil's done, come with me. Follow me. So this vision in Daniel 7 began as a nightmare with monsters coming out of the sea. And it ends very happily and hopefully with the Son of Man coming out of heaven, whom God crowns sovereign king over the whole world. Dale Ralph Davis says, here you must see the scene, S-C-E-N-E, behind what is seen, S-E-E-N. You have to see the scene behind what is seen. What's taking place behind what you can understand and see in front of you. The majestic judge and reigning king have mortgaged none of their sovereignty over history and its scourges. Seeing this reality behind all of human history may not keep God's people from pain, but it will keep them from panic. We may still be fearful, but we will not be frantic. One pastor says it this way, how is all of this supposed to be applied to us? There are a lot of things that thrill my soul and encourage me in these verses, but what's the major point? The early verses in this chapter focus on the turmoil and the political upheaval that happens in our world constantly. It's happening today. Many Christians feel it. They struggle with what's going on locally at the state level, at the federal level, and across the world. But 
Verses 9 through 14 remind us that God doesn't want us to be absorbed by focusing on the political scene on this planet. We're not to be obsessed with the politics of the nations. Like Daniel, we are to lift our eyes from this planet, and through it all, we're to remain constant in our focus on the Ancient of Days and on his Son. This text reminds us that whatever happens on this planet, however bad things get, even when they get worse, even when they get to their very worst with the Antichrist, and he rages against God, and he blasphemes God, and he ridicules God. When everyone on this planet is holding their fists in the face of God, our sovereign God is still on his throne. He's not surprised. He's not panicked. He's not powerless. He has infinite power. And if he decided not to judge himself, not to do it himself, he has more than 100 million angels who can take his purpose and accomplish it. He's not surprised. He's not panicked. He's not powerless. Instead, he sits on his throne and day by day, slowly, methodically, works out his sovereign plan. So, get your eyes off the turmoil of this world and lift them to the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne and his eternal plan. Look at his eternal plan that will be accomplished in his eternal son. It won't eliminate the suffering. Brothers and sisters, verses 1 through 8 are still very much true. Evil reigns, beastly kingdoms happen. It will not eliminate the suffering. But how hopeful are you provide sanity? So can I just ask you, how hopeful are you for the days ahead? How hopeful are you for the days ahead? Do you tend to have your eyes fixed on the political turmoil, on the evil that runs rampant in this world? Or have you lifted your eyes? Do you lift your eyes frequently to the sovereign who's sitting on his throne? And you say nothing can thwart his plans. In fact, he promised exactly what's going to happen. He knows. And so we get to know as well. This hope should provide sanity in the midst of our suffering. But it also should provide one other thing in conclusion. Not only sanity in the midst of suffering, it should provide an incentive for our evangelism. This vision should provide an incentive and an assurance for our evangelism. Remember Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, to the Son of Man. And then he tells us with that authority, go, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize, because I have all the authority and I'm with you to the end of the age. The work of proclaiming the gospel, the work of evangelism in the world is a logical deduction from the truth of these verses. If we know this is where human history is headed, that there's a kingdom made without hands that Jesus is going to establish, we are just simply pleading with people to go into that kingdom. I was watching something with my kids last night. Uh, we were watching a little Reformation movie about Martin Luther. It was talking about there being two different roads. There's a path that leads to hell and destruction and a path that leads to heaven. And many are those who find the road to destruction and fewer are those who find the road to heaven. And just watching it, you can see a visual picture, a visual representation of a whole lot of people going the wrong direction and they get to the end and they see this steep cliff and fire from the, the end of that steep cliff and they start crying and they realize I took a wrong turn but they can't go back. And then you have this tiny little road that just a couple people are watching this massive flow of people going the wrong way and they're looking going, we're going this way and it's difficult and it's hard and they're climbing a mountain and it's challenging but they make it to the end and they're in glory. And I turned to my son, to Tyler, who's six years old and I said, Tyler, why in the world would anyone choose a road to destruction? Why would anybody pick that road? We know where it's going. Why don't people go this way? And Tyler, not too confident, but boy did he get it right. He said, uh, because they love their sin? That's it. Brothers and sisters, evangelism is just saying, I get it. I, sin is pleasurable. I, I get it. I used to love it. It used to be my treasure. It used to be what I enjoyed and what I cherished. And then God in his grace opened my eyes to see Christ is better than sin. And I now submit to him. And I love him. And he thrills my soul in a way that sin never could and never ever was able to. And now I follow him. And now I've been given life, not only eternal life in the, in the future, but life now. Eternal life now, the quality that I've been given now of eternal life in the present is completely different than the 
So the work of evangelism is just saying, hey, there's a kingdom coming. Don't be a part of the destructible kingdoms, the ones that will fail, the beastly kingdoms that God will destroy. Be a part of the kingdom that lasts forever. Some people say that evangelism is intolerant and arrogant because we're trying to compel people to see things our way, right? Just see things my way. And honestly, if these verses weren't true and Jesus is not going to rule and not going to reign on a throne, then I would agree. Evangelism is just trying to compel somebody to see things our way. But because these verses are true, we're not telling people in evangelism our way. We're telling them about the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And we're just saying, we know that this is happening. Come with us. Please follow Jesus. The reason why we love to share that story is because we find ourselves in this text. As much as we would not like it to be true of us, we find ourselves, before these thrones are ever set up, we find ourselves a part of the beastly kingdoms that war against God. Every sin that you and I commit is a sin against this throne. Every sin that we commit is a sin that says, I want to rule my own life. That's exactly what the beastly kingdoms were doing. And then God in his grace says, oh, I know that you love your sin, and I know that you're blind, and I know that you can't see, and I don't want you to die. I don't want you to perish. I don't want you to go to that destructible kingdom, as John Bunyan would phrase it, the city of destruction. I don't want you to stay there. So I'm going to make a way. The Father, the Ancient of Days, sends the Son of Man. The Son of Man lives in our place, a perfect sinless life. Never sinning, not one bad thought, not one bad action, not one bad attitude. And the Son of Man is then nailed to a cross. After living perfection, he dies as if he were a sinner. Because he bears all of our sin. So that we could be forgiven, so that we could be freed from it. But forgiveness isn't the ultimate goal of the cross. Forgiveness is a great thing that was accomplished at the cross, but forgiveness is just God doing the work to get stuff out of the way so that we could be reconciled to the Father. This is about salvation, not in a sense of just being forgiven for your sins, but in being reconciled and brought into the family of God. Now you are a son or a daughter of the Ancient of Days, and you get to rule and reign with him. That's what Christianity is about. And so we bow the knee gladly. Philippians chapter 2 says that we're going to bow the knee on the last day, And you will either do it with gladness in your heart or you'll be forced to do it. But I just, I want to ask you this morning. Where is your hope? What is your greatest treasure? What do you love more than anything in the world? What is your expectation about what life's going to give you? What's your expectation about the end, Lord, with confidence? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, these verses can encourage you to trust the Lord with confident assurance. And if you don't know why you can have confident assurance in Jesus Christ, if you don't know why we at CBC love him more than anything in this world, I would plead with you, don't leave until you talk with one of us, because we'd love to tell you why Jesus is better. He's better than life. He's better than sin. He's better than it all. And so we bow the knee to him. We run to him. And we glory with confident assurance in the ancient of days and in the Son of Man. Father, we thank you so much for the book of Daniel that has led us to this place where in the midst of the turmoil of these kingdoms, in the midst of the the fear and the terrifying nature of what was happening, Daniel's eyes are fixed on you, on your goodness, on your beauty, on your glory. Thank you, Jesus, for making a way for our sin to be removed, for making a way for life. You died and you were raised from the dead three days later so that sin and death would be conquered once and for all and that we could be reconciled to you. The very one that that we were warring against made a way for us to be a part of your family. What amazing love. What kindness. What grace. What mercy. And that's why we love you. We love you because you first loved us and we know that love. We see that love and we want to share that love. We want to encourage one another with that love. So may we do that this day. 
May we point one another to the confident assurance we have. Yes, the days are dark, and they will probably only get darker, as Daniel 7 has told us. But that doesn't mean that we just put our heads in the sand or that we go around with a ho-hum attitude that nothing's going to get better and that just everything's uh, just being destroyed. No, we have confident assurance. We have all people. We know that the best is yet to come. So make us be a people that would live with a different flavor to their attitude, to their atmosphere, a different flavor to our aura, a different way that we walk in this world. Even where other believers might be discouraged and discontent, may they see us just with a smile, laughing at the days ahead, knowing you are ruling and you are reigning on your throne, both now and forevermore. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please stand with us if you would. No. Oh. 